this evening or this morning. I've already got my mind on this evening. I, I feel like the Lord's giving me a word for this evening's service, and I'm going to promise you if you'll come, the Lord's going to speak to you tonight. Amen? But this morning, uh, we're going to pick up in the book of Romans. We're in the 16th chapter. We are in our 88th lesson from the book of Romans, and we won't finish it today, but we will finish it soon because this is we're running out of we're running out of verses. Amen. Romans chapter 16 and verse 17 is where we're going to start today. I want to say how good it is to see each and every one of you in the house of God. Amen. Thank you so much for your faithfulness. It does my heart good to see you here. Amen. And I know that you're blessed by being here, by the presence of God and the Spirit of God that ministers to and through each and every one of us. Romans chapter 16, beginning in verse 17, it says, Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you've learned, and avoid them. For they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by good words and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the simple. For your obedience has come abroad unto all men. I am glad, therefore, on your behalf. But yet I would have you wise unto that which is good and simple concerning evil. And the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. And I'm, I'm going to take that segment today. I said at the outset that sometimes in this, this closing, we're going to see these very personal greetings. And last week, we went through all these different stories of individuals that, that Paul greeted. But in the middle of all this, there's still some theologically significant things that Paul says. And this little section that's inserted here in the last chapter, what happens in these four verses is that Paul issues a very strong warning to the church in Rome. And it's a little out of character for uh, the way that the rest of the letter has been written. That throughout the whole of the book of Romans, Paul has been very careful and very tactful. He has appealed to scripture and reason to establish his points. He's been very mindful of the fact that he has never ministered to the church in Rome. He is not their founder and he, he, they don't know him and he doesn't know them. And, and so he's been careful and, and diplomatic in the things that he said and the cases he's made. But now in these four verses, in this final segment of the book, uh, his voice takes on more of an edge than it has anywhere else in the book. Paul launches into this strong, authoritative admonition, asserting his apostolic authority without reservation. Amen. He, he steps up and says, I want to warn you. I, wanna, I want you to be aware. And you might ask, what danger is it that brings this out in Paul? What danger is it that causes him to step up and say, on, on my authority as an apostle, I come to warn you? What is it that he's so adamant about? The answer is troublemakers. He strongly urges the Romans to watch out for troublemakers and avoid them at any cost. One of the things that makes this passage so interesting is the fact that there is no evidence anywhere else in the letter that there are troublemakers in the church in Rome. As a matter of fact, we, we, we've seen him praise the church in Rome for her obedience, for her faith, for her, she noised abroad of all the good that's in that church. So we, we don't know, uh, we have no indication of these troublemakers, but we do know uh, 
that Paul has encountered troublemakers elsewhere. His letter to the Galatians, which was written before his letter uh, to the Romans, was written in response to the fact that these troublemakers had come into the church that he planted and they were tearing it apart. They were literally destroying the work that he had done. So these troublemakers, perhaps they're already in Rome. Perhaps Paul just suspects that they will end up in Rome. But one way or another, he feels it's his apostolic duty to warn the church to, to be careful about these troublemakers. Now, these troublemakers were essentially Judaizers, which means that they were Jewish Christians who insisted that Gentile Christians had to keep the law of Moses to be saved. In other words, I've, and I've talked about this previously, they, they had a faith that was a blend of Christianity and Judaism. They wanted, to, they wanted to embrace Jesus Christ as Savior, but they wanted to hold on to the, the law and the sacrifices and the, the requirements of the law. And they were trying to blend the two together and make them. And, and But when you do that, you, you pervert the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. Jesus came as the Lamb of God who died for the sins of the whole world. There is no other Lamb that can take his place. There is no other Lamb. And so that's what the writer of Hebrews means when he says there remains no more blood for sacrifice. There's no other blood you're going to shed that's going to cover your sins. The whole sacrificial system, it ended in Jesus Christ. He shed the only blood that has the ability to wash away sin. And if you reject the blood of Jesus, you've rejected the only thing that can save you. So Paul, he he's had these Judaizers that come in and they've They've stirred up strife and division in the church previously. And so now he issues this warning to be on the lookout for those that would come in and stir up strife and division in the church in Rome. He specifically exhorts the church to watch out for, uh, to, to have an eye for, to, to, to be aware of these false teachers. They're to be on the lookout for them, to, to keep their eyes open for these troublemakers so that they will recognize them. And he even encourages them to mark them, identify them. Don't be afraid to call them out. Don't be afraid to identify who they are because they are the ones which cause divisions and offenses. It's interesting that Paul does not refer directly to the false doctrine that is propagated by these false teachers, but instead he speaks of divisions and offenses that they cause in the church. Divisions refers to anything that separates one group of brethren or, or one, one group in the church from another group in the church. It, it has to do with dividing the congregation into factions and pitting one side against the other and causing disunity in the church. That, that idea of division is coming in and breaking up the unity of the house of God and sowing discord in between brothers and sisters. That, that word, Greek word that's translated as offenses comes from a word that is 
a little more difficult to directly translate. It refers to stumbling blocks or obstacles that are placed in someone's path. However, it has the strong connotation of not just being there to slow them down, but having the intent of causing them real physical harm, real lasting harm. So these aren't just, sometimes we think a stumbling block, and to us the word stumbling is, is, is something that you recover from. Does that make sense? You stumble and you keep going. But in the, in, the, in the Greek usage of that phrase, stumbling block, it's not so much something that you recover from. It's something that can kill you. It's the difference between tripping over something and falling in a pit full of bungee stakes. And the one's intended to kill you. The other was intended to hinder you. And, and what he's, this, this word that is translated as offenses, it implies those things that are intended to kill. They're intended to destroy. They're intended to hurt, uh, to, 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 to break people away from their faith in Jesus Christ. So the next question then is what are these offenses? Paul tells us that they are teaching Things that are contrary to the doctrine which you've learned. So that implies that the Romans have already learned good, solid doctrine. And Paul's already acknowledged that, and he's expounded on that. Remember, he, this is not a primer. This book of Romans is not an introduction to the Christian faith. It's more of an advanced graduate level course on Christianity. He's, he, because the, the church he's writing to, they've got an understanding. They're, they're solidly grounded in doctrine. And so uh, what he tells them is these troublemakers who come in, they're going to have a doctrine that they're going to teach. They're going to have things that they're going to share with you that are contrary to the doctrines that you've heard and learned. They're, they're not in harmony with what you previously held to. This, this faith that I have heralded as being among the Romans, this, these men are going to teach you things that are contrary to what you've already learned. And so he warns them, be on the lookout. For those teaching a message that is different than the precious truth that has been delivered to you. Amen. Because these doctrines of devils that come into the church try to stir up division in the church and lead some into eternal destruction. Not everybody's going to fall under their, their spell. Not everybody is going to be led astray, but they come in and they divide and, and they put stumbling blocks and, and they cause wreck and ruin and heartache in the house of God. So Paul said, mark them. Avoid them. Turn away from them. Shun them. Keep away from them. Most importantly, don't give them any opportunity to spread their false teaching to you or to anyone else. This scripture stands in contrast to a more prevalent theme of our day. The, the prevailing sentiment seems to be that we should seek for peace and unity among believers even if we don't all believe the same thing even if there are doctrinal differences. And that sounds good on the face of it, for surely there are some non-significant things about which we, we may disagree, and it really doesn't matter. But in Rome, there, there certainly were some who were strong in the faith. We know that from Romans chapter uh, 14. And there were some who were weak in the faith, and, and Paul didn't encourage them to separate over it, but he encouraged them to have unity there and, and to grow together and to grow in their faith together, to strive to get along. But he doesn't encourage that at the cost of sound doctrine. 
The whole peace at any price mindset goes a lot deeper than just including the acceptance of, of, of things that we may disagree on that are not theologically or doctrinally significant. Amen. This, this whole idea that we should make peace includes the acceptance of false doctrine in the name of unity. And they argue that doctrine is divisive, that doctrine is what divides the church, that doctrine is, you know, all these people, we all believe in Jesus Christ. We all have these churches. We're all good, loving people. And the only thing that divides us is our doctrine. They, they believe it just a little different than I believe it. And, and we ought to just be able to set all of that aside. And let's all just come together and realize we're all children of Jesus Christ. That's not what Paul said. Paul didn't say doctrine divides. Paul said it's compromise that divides. It's false teaching that divides. It's that which is contrary to what you previously learned. That which is contrary to what the apostles have taught and preached. That which is contrary to the what the Bible says it, you're bound to it. That's not divisive. Amen? And so... They, they've missed the point entirely. And Paul makes it claim, plain that, that doctrine is not what divides the church and causes folks to stumble. It's false doctrine and false teachings that disrupt and harm the work of God. We don't have to choose between sound doctrine and unity. We can have sound doctrine and have unity. Amen? As a matter of fact, we pursue unity through sound doctrine, and we obey the words of Paul, which are to watch out for false doctrine, to keep your eyes open, to be aware that they're coming, and mark them, and avoid them, because they cause division and destruction in the house of God. Amen? Standing for truth is not divisive. Standing for truth is not a bad thing. It is not a hindrance to the work of God or the work of the church, but embracing error will tear the church apart. Embracing false doctrine will divide the church and lead many into, into that pit of bungee stakes, that obstacle that will destroy them. Verse 18 says, For they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by good words and fair speeches, deceive the hearts of the simple. So now Paul describes these false teachers. Instead of serving the Lord, he says, they serve their own belly. Now, the first thing I get felt when I read that was conviction. Amen. Maybe he's talking about overeating. And Lord knows I'm guilty. Amen. Uh, as far as I know, I'm not guilty of any kind of false doctrine, but I'm guilty of eating a little bit too much every now and then. Amen? But that's not exactly what is being implied here. The, the belly is used here and elsewhere to represent the physical appetites, the lust of the flesh. And these teachers are characterized by the fact that instead of being servants of Jesus Christ, they are slaves to the desires of their flesh. And while we don't get the idiom as well because there are several thousand years of separation between us and, and the time that Paul wrote it. And in our culture, amen, we know what the whole nine yards means, but we don't know what uh, they, they worship their own belly means. Amen. Now, if you said to Paul the whole nine yards, he'd look at you like he's crazy because he doesn't know what the whole nine yards means. 
And so it takes a little bit of study sometimes to dig in and understand these, these little idioms that are used in the Word of God. But in, in this reference to the belly, it's a reference to the lust of the flesh, to the appetites of the flesh. And these teachers, they serve their flesh. They don't serve Jesus Christ. They're, they don't serve our Lord and Savior, but they serve their flesh. They are those who preach liberty but embrace the bondage of sin. The dangerous thing about them is that they are smooth talkers. They know how to flatter folks. They have good words and fair speech, and and they they know how to influence people, and they're good at it. Their arguments sound good. Their speech creates the illusion of truth. Even when they're spreading lies, they know how to make a lie sound like the truth. Kind of like a used car salesman. You know, a little bit... You know, some people can, I know Andrew's not here. <laughs> some people can sell anything. Amen. And, and I, I, you know, they, they can make anything sound good, no matter how bad it is. They could, they could dress it up. And some people can tell you a lie and make it sound like they're telling you the truth and even persuade you to believe in, in a lie. They call them con artists in our world, amen. They, men and women who, who prey on people, who take advantage of people, who convince them. There's a, there's a stunt going around. I'm about to chase a rabbit. i got to reel it back in. But there's a stunt going around right now. They're calling folks... And, and the phone call, if you get it, it will say, uh, you know, this is so-and-so from the Internal Revenue Service, and there's a warrant out for your arrest because of uh, back taxes. But if you'll let me work with you, I can fix that for you while you're on the phone here. And, and if you say, well, you know, I don't, whatever, they, they do their best to scare you and intimidate you. And the Internal Revenue Service has come out and said, that, well, they do audit, folks, and they do, uh, they do come after you for money. They never do it over the phone. They're going to send you a certified letter. You're going to know when you hear from the IRS. But these con artists, they call people and they convince them. Nobody, every, first of all, everybody sees the IRS as the big boogeyman, right? Second of all, everybody's a little intimidated by that. And so they prey on that fear and they, they, they use that as a weakness and they convince people that a lie is the truth. And they deceive them. Then the problem with that is that their good words and fair speeches, Paul says, deceives the hearts of the simple. The Greek word translated as simple means innocent or unsuspecting. These, there, there are some folks who are, are easy prey for these false teachers. They're, they're easily enticed by the words of men's wisdom. They're attracted to those who have a polished delivery, who have a charismatic personality, who who are likable, and, and they, they're, they're, they're easy to fall under the sway. In another place in Scripture, those people are referred to as having itching ears. They, they like to hear good, good, they like to hear a, a well-polished speaker, someone who's good at, at their craft, and, and they're not very discerning about what is being said. They just, they like, they're attracted to the way it's said. Does that make sense? But we have to remember that when it comes to preaching and teaching the Word of God, style is always subordinate to content. I'd rather have somebody who can preach their way out of a wet paper sack preach me truth than to sit and listen to the most polished of speakers fill my ears with lies and deception. 
It's not so much the way it was delivered as it is the truth that is in it. Amen. Verse 19 says, For your obedience has come abroad unto all men. I am glad, therefore, on your behalf, but yet I would have you wise unto that which is good and simple concerning evil. Now Paul compliments the church in Rome. Uh, these words harken back to the first chapter where he also noted that the Roman church was well known throughout Christianity for their stand for truth. In particular, they were known for their obedience. When Paul talks about the word obedience, when he uses that term obedience in the book of Romans, he's making reference to the, a phrase that occurs in the fifth verse of the book and occurs again in the second to last verse in the book. They, what scholars say is that Paul bracketed the whole book of Romans with this phrase. And this phrase is unique. It's unique to Paul, as a matter of fact. It appears nowhere else in Scripture, and it appears nowhere in the literature of that day and age. There's no other example anywhere that you can go through for context text to determine what the phrase means. The phrase is, it's two Greek words superimposed together. One is faith and the other is obedience. And the way that they're written, obedience precedes faith and faith is in the genitive case, which means that it, exp it expresses an ownership of the word that comes before it. So that the, the translation, the translation the King James Version uses is the obedience of faith. But the translation could very well be that. It could very well be the obedience of faith of the obedience that springs from faith, or it could just as easily be said that it is faith's obedience. In other words, faith possesses obedience. Faith has ownership of obedience. Uh, it, it's very true in the, in the context of that construct to say that faith is not faith unless it exhibits obedience. I use the example a lot about the $100 bill, you've all heard it if I pulled out, and I, I, I haven't even seen one so long I've forgotten what they look like, but if I pulled out a $100 bill and laid it here on the on the pulpit and said the first one that, uh, you know, come and got it could have, if you believe me, you'd, you'd, you'd already been up here, right? But if you don't believe me, you're going to stay right where you are because faith always has obedience with it. So, these Roman Christians, they are believers who have obeyed God. Their, their faith has produced in them works of obedience. And what is interesting is this, that Paul says it is by these works of obedience that they're known to all men, not by their faith. He didn't say your faith is celebrated throughout the world. He said that your obedience, that obedience to the faith is celebrated. People have recognized your obedience. Why is that? Because the only way to really gauge faith is through what one does. The only way to gauge faithfulness is through action. And so he, he can't say the whole world recognizes your faith, for the world has no notion of my faith except through what I do. And so the world recognizes your obedience, he says. That obedience which springs from faith, or that obedience that faith possesses. But on top of that, Paul says there are two character traits that they need to strive for. That the last part of the verse, it says, I would have you, this is what you, you need, need you to be wise unto that which is good 
and simple concerning evil. So let's talk about those two things. Being wise unto that which is good, or being wise about what is good, is an admonition to maintain a knowledge of the truth. To say that we are wise, uh, uh, that we should be wise in that which is good, is one way of saying that we should be familiar, soundly and thoroughly familiar with good, sound doctrine. I'll give you an illustration. They tell me that the, the best way to learn to detect a counterfeit is to become original, become familiar with the original. In other words, when they sit down with a group of bank tellers and teach them to recognize counterfeit $100 bills, they don't bring them a bunch of fake $100 bills to look at and, and see the mistakes and find out uh, what makes them fake. Instead, they bring them piles of real money. And they had them handle the original. And they had them feel the original and look at the original and see the original until it becomes ingrained in their mind what the original is. Because it is not possible to envision every method and every means that a, a counterfeiter might use to replicate a $100 bill. There's no way to imagine the, the many variances of what they might encounter. There are a vast variety of ways to create a, a fake bill. But the real thing is made the same way every single time. It looks the same. It feels the same. It has the same texture. It has the same color. Amen. There's no variance in it. And so they take those tellers and they have them handle hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these bills so that they learn what the real thing is. That's how they know what the fake thing is. That's how they know the difference. You might, you might fool someone who doesn't really know what the real thing is. But when you, you go to pass off that fake bill to somebody who's handled hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of the real thing, it, man, the minute their fingers touch it, it doesn't feel right. It doesn't smell right. It doesn't look right. It's just they're immediately the understanding this isn't right. That's what Paul is talking about. He's telling the church false doctrine is going to try to creep in. People are going to try to come in and, and subvert the doctrine of the church. They're going to come in and they're going to try to change the foundations of your faith. And the best way to insulate yourself against false doctrine is not to study falsehoods, but instead to study truth. The best way to settle yourself against false doctrine, that's why Paul doesn't go into the things that they teach. There's not an explanation here of the things that they're preaching and teaching. Instead, there's the admonition, become comfortable, become wise about truth, become wise about that which is good, become firmly grounded and rooted in good, solid doctrine because that's the best way to protect yourself against false doctrine. That is your best defense. It should be noted that wisdom here extends beyond book knowledge and into real applied principles of living, real life practice. Because it's one thing to know doctrine. It is another thing to live it out. And you're not wise in doctrine until you put it into practice in your life. 
I know some folks who know a lot about God, but don't know God. I know some folks who know a lot about the Bible, but don't really know the message of the Bible. It's not enough just to be a student. You have to be a follower. Amen? The same time, Paul says, the Romans need to retain a simplicity, a, a genuine innocence with respect to that which is evil. That, that word simple means pure or innocent. We are, we are to be simple concerning evil. In other words, we are to separate ourselves from it. We, we shouldn't participate in it. There are some things, some sins, and some deceptions of this world that we're better off not knowing about. We're better off not learning about. We're better off not even, not even taking the time to become knowledgeable about them. Does that make sense? Sometimes curiosity entices us to, to, to become knowledgeable about sin. Sometimes it entices, well, you know, I heard what they're doing. What, let me read that gossip rag and find out what he's doing. And let me, you know, the headlines are so titillating and enticing and, and they're full of all these things that, that, that you, you read and wonder. But sometimes the reading and the wondering, if you aren't careful, uh, when you put yourself in the place of familiarity with sin, you can put yourself in the place where your defense is weakened. And what becomes familiar to us becomes normal to us. And as much as a knowledge of truth protects me from error, an innocence about evil serves as a buffer between me and sin. This is one area where it's not a detriment to be ignorant. All kinds of folks in our world are engaged in all kinds of vile and repulsive behaviors. You can find just any, if they say, and I can't testify to it, but they say that if the human mind can conceive of a decadence, you can find it on the Internet. You look hard enough, long enough, deep enough, you can find anything that the human mind can conceive of. But I don't have to go find it. I don't have to know about it. I don't have to become well-versed in the variety of ways that people sin or the variety of areas of decadence in our world. I don't have to become a master in those things which are evil. As a matter of fact, I am better off spiritually if I remain simple about evil things. Just avoid it. Just turn your back on it. It's kind of like when you see a poisonous snake. Unless you're Brother Randy, you don't go over and play with it. You don't try to get close to it and examine it. You don't try to learn the intricacies of its natural camouflage. You don't want to, you don't, you know, the first thing I see when I see a water moccasin, sometimes I, because I know one of the identifying factors is the color of its underbelly. And so you wonder, you know, has that got yellow fringe over there? Is that what? But, you know, you don't get down and get in your hands and knees and get and try to look underneath the belly of the snake. Amen? At least most of us don't. You, you get out of the way. You go out of your way to avoid it. You don't get any closer to it than you have to. Because you recognize the inherent danger of being in close proximity to something that is so dangerous. Amen. That is so quick to strike that in just a moment can ruin your whole day. So if he wants that stretch of ditch bank, Brother Donnie, he can have it. I'll find somewhere else to fish. Amen. 
I'll go somewhere else. That's the kind of attitude that Paul says we should have about evil. Don't go investigate it. Don't go learn everything you can about it. Just remain simple. Just remain innocent. Just remain pure and holy. Don't get close enough to it to gain a a knowledge of the intricacies of it. Stay away from it as much as you can. Amen? Hey, that's good, solid preaching, folks. Verse 20 says, And the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Two phrases, two sentences. The first one, the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly, is a promise of victory. The God of peace is going to overcome this world of sin. Satan will be bruised under the feet of the church. Now, this is a very interesting verse because... It's an allusion to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 where God told the serpent in Genesis 3 and 15, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. And the word seed there is capitalized. That's a capital S. What, what, who is her seed? Who is her seed? Jesus Christ. He's going to put enmity between your seed and her seed, And he, with a capital H, Jesus, shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So this was a prophecy of the coming Messiah. At the cross, the snake would strike. He would strike the heel, as as it were. I don't know, you know, your heel, if you get, you kind of get hobbled a little bit. It hurts when you get hit on the heel, but it's not devastating. And the cross, which seems to be devastating, will be to Jesus Christ no more than just being struck on the heel. But whenever he dies and is buried and rises again on the third day, he's going to strike back and he's going to put the serpent under his foot and he's going to crush his head. And so it's a prophecy concerning the Messiah. It's a prophecy concerning the cross. And the words that are spoken there were originally spoken in reference to Jesus Christ. So there are two really neat things to notice here. First of all, it was Jesus Christ who bruised Satan. Yet Paul has no problem relating that promise to God, calling him the God of peace. It's another incident where it becomes very clear that Peter sees no, or Paul sees no difference between Jesus and God. He doesn't see a division there. He doesn't see a difference there. He, he is fluid in, in moving from one to the other, one, one statement to the other, without any worry. Elsewhere in the book of Romans, we've seen him take a promise that pertained to God, Yahweh of the Old Testament, and apply it to Jesus. And we've pointed that out. This is the first time we've seen a prophecy that applies to Jesus that is attributed to God. Amen. It's kind of the same situation working in the reverse. Paul moves seamlessly between the notion of God and the notion of Christ, our Messiah. He applies the whole counsel of Scripture as it pertains to the mighty God to Jesus Christ. He sees no difference between the two in Paul's mind Jesus is God manifest in the flesh he has no concept of any separation of persons there it is one God manifest in the flesh secondly the original verse in Genesis prophesied that Satan would be crushed under the feet of Jesus But now Paul carries that a little further. 
He says, Satan will be bruised under your feet. The church is going to be a part of Jesus' victory over Satan. And, and Paul's point is that the followers of Jesus will, in every way conceivable, share in Jesus' victory over the devil. That, that power that wins victory over the devil is God's power. And he's the one that actually crushes Satan. But the enemy, Paul says, is crushed under our feet, meaning that he's crushed in our personal experience. He's crushed in our personal stories, in our lives, and the circumstance that we're in, that word for crush has to do with, with absolutely shattering or smashing or, or destroying, and the imagery leaves no doubt that evil will be conquered in the life of a believer. There, there's overcoming power in faith in Jesus Christ. Amen. And since the church is the body of Christ, it's perfectly acceptable to understand we are his feet. Amen. His feet are our feet. And we will participate in the defeat of Satan. By the grace of God, this church is going to be victorious. Satan is going to be under its foot. Amen. The word translated shortly can mean either soon or swiftly. Perhaps the emphasis is that when the conquest of Satan comes, it'll be swift. It'll happen suddenly. We may struggle against him now. We may fight against a very real adversary in the flesh. But there is coming a day when in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, he will be utterly and completely destroyed. But that word shortly may also refer to a more immediate victory. Paul may be saying, don't despair. The enemy that you struggle against right now in your life is just about to be defeated. The war may go on until the rapture takes place. But this present battle that you're in right now, if you just hold on, you're about to win the victory. If you just hold on, he's about to be crushed under your feet. Hang in there. You will overcome and your enemy will be bruised. Amen. What a powerful message. The final sentence of verse 20 is interesting because it is part of Paul's standard way of concluding his letters. The same or very similar words appear at the end of every letter that Paul wrote. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. In every other case, except in 1 Corinthians... That phrase is either the final verse in the book or part of the final verse in the book. The one exception outside of Romans is 1 Corinthians where it appears in the second to last verse in the book. In other words, it's always at the closing. It's always at the very end. But here in Romans, it's not at the end. It's, it's right here in the, at the end of this section. And there are reasons for that. There's more that Paul is going to unfold. There are more greetings he wants to give. Next week we'll get into some more greetings. But there's also a doxology or a moment of praise that he wants to participate in. So he's going to end this letter a little different. But this is a very classic Pauline phrase. Uh, the, the pronouncement, it is considered to be a pronouncement of blessing. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. It's a prayer for the grace of God to be present in your life, that you would live in the shelter of His goodness, that you would rejoice in the gifts of His presence. And Christian blessings like this are unique, and they are powerful. They're what theologians call 
performative speech. It, it, that concept is not something that we're real familiar with. It's not something that really works in the human realm. But we can understand it in context of God. When God speaks, his word performs the deed. In other words, if God says, let there be light, he doesn't have to do anything else to create light. His word makes it so. There's creative power in his word so that when he speaks it, it becomes a reality. That is speech that performs. That's performative speech. And in the Old Testament, when the priest would pronounce a blessing over the people of God, it was seen as performative speech. In Numbers chapter 6 and verse 23, the Lord commanded Aaron and his sons to bless the children of Israel, saying these words, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. And be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And this is what God promised. Even as you say it, I will do it. That blessing was performative. When the priest said those words, the Lord bless you and make his face to shine upon you. They, the blessing that they spoke of came into existence. It came into being. God did it even as they said it. There was a very real transfer of presence and blessing that was conveyed by the words of the priest. Likewise, you and I as Holy Ghost-filled believers have that same authority. When you say, God bless you, in some supernatural way, you impart the blessing of God that is real in your life to the person that you're speaking with in whatever measure that they will receive it. God's not going to force himself on anybody, but when you say God bless you, it's more than just a, a phrase or a turn of speech. There's a performative action there where the anointing of God, you have that ability. Why? You've been baptized in the name of Jesus. What you declare in his name is. Amen? And so you have that ability to convey blessing. May the blessings of God be on your life. May the There's a certain presence that we need to realize who we are in Jesus Christ. We're Holy Ghost-filled children of God. Amen. And just as much as Paul says to the church, the grace of God be with you. It, it is. When he says it, there's a transfer there. When you read it, there's, there's a, an initiation of a blessing in your life. One thing that I'll never forget is the feeling of indebtedness that I felt towards those who expressed such kindness and love to my wife and I after Harrison was born. The heart surgery that he had was a very traumatic event. We were isolated, uprooted from our lives, cut off from everything that we knew, lived in a waiting room. I mean, ate in the cafeteria and slept in the waiting room chairs and hoped against hope that our baby was going to survive. But our family and our loved ones, our brothers and sisters in the Lord, stepped up, rose to meet the challenge, and they were there for us. Our parents and our siblings and our church faithful friends and believers in the church, they, they came to where we are and they ministered to us and they were a blessing to us. They were there for us when we needed them the most. And they blessed us 
with more than just their presence. They blessed us with gifts, and with food. And when, you, when you're living in a waiting room, food matters. And they blessed us with the comforts of home, blankets and pillows and, 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 and even clothes. And we, we left the hospital when, when four or five days later, we're still wearing the same clothes. Amen. I, I, my mom and dad took me out to Walmart, bought me new jeans. Those things, they mattered. They, there was a certain indebtedness that was hard to express. It's hard to understand. But it wasn't just our family. It wasn't just our parents. It wasn't just the church folks. But people from our jobs, people from our workplace, people that, that didn't have any kind of religious connection to us went out of their way to come to Little Rock to see us, to bring us a gift, or to just come and express their, their, an act of consolation to be there with us. And something happened in those few days. I, I reached a place where, Sister Anderson, thank you, just didn't seem adequate. It just didn't seem to be enough. It seemed so shallow compared to the sacrifices that people were making to express their love for us. And somewhere in that span of time, I came to the conclusion that the best thing that I could do was to pray that God would bless them in the same measure that they had blessed us. I recognized that I owed a debt that I could not pay, but that God was more than enough to repay that debt. So if you hang around me very much at all, you'll discover that I have a tendency to say, God bless you, to just about Everyone that I encounter, the bank teller, the grocery clerk, the waitress, the businessman, I, I, tell, I tell the salespeople who call me at work that I don't know from Adam. When I end a phone call, when I end a conversation without, it's almost second nature to me. Those words, God bless you, appear at the end of every interaction. That practice started during those days after Harrison was born. It was born out of a heart that wanted to do something tangible and real to bless those that had blessed me. I viewed it in the beginning as a prayer. I recognized that I was asking God to do what I could not do for myself. I didn't understand it then the way that I understand it now. I'd never heard of the concept of performative speech. I was just operating in faith that God would repay my debt that I couldn't pay for myself. And so I, I, when I didn't have any other words to say, I said, God, bless you. And you know what? God did. And God does. Sometimes we need to recognize, if you stand with me, just what it means to be filled with the Holy Ghost. The Spirit of Jesus Christ, in a very real way, lives inside of you. When you walk into a room, Jesus walks into that room. When you walk into a situation, a circumstance, the Holy Ghost, the presence of a holy God walks into that place with you. And you have the ability. You have the blessing. You have the, 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 the authority. To bless or to curse. And let me admonish you this morning. Follow Paul's example. 
be a blessing. Be a blessing to everyone you encounter. Be a blessing to those who don't bless you in return. Be a blessing to those who may not ever understand. Wherever you go and whatever you do, let the blessings of the Holy Ghost flow through your life. Let your words and your actions magnify God and bless others. That's your gift. Nobody else can give that gift to the world the way you can. But you've been filled with the Spirit of God. And you have that ability simply to pray a blessing and know God's going to follow through on what I I'm asking him that he's going to, his presence in a very real way. And walk into a hospital room with people I don't know from Adam. That I, I, I you know, I, Brother Larry's called and his sister's cousin's aunt's brother is in the hospital. I don't know Brother Larry's sister's cousin's aunt's brother from anything in the world. And they don't know me. I can walk into that hospital room and they say, who are you? I say, well, I'm your sister's aunt's cousin's brother. I'm Brother Larry's friend. Amen. But it really doesn't matter whether I know them or they know me. Because there's a presence that walks into that room with me. There's a comfort and a peace that resides not, not just in my life, but in your life. As a Holy Ghost-filled believer, you make a difference in your world every single day. You walk into situations where there's turmoil and chaos. There's peace in your heart. And you may not always be able to see the difference immediately, but it makes a difference in the atmosphere. People who are broken and hurt. I find it in restaurants, different places around town. I'm a magnet for people who are a little strange sometimes. They just come from everywhere. I hear some of the wildest stories. I don't know how people know you're a preacher. They just know. Why? Because they feel something. There's something very real, very powerful about being a Holy Ghost-filled believer. I want to encourage you on this Sunday morning to be a blessing. But I know that I ended last. These are, these are the closing of the letter. It's a little difficult to find an altar call. But I want to ask you if you'd come to the front this morning for a few moments. Would you just, could we lift our hands and magnify the Lord? And can we pledge ourselves, Lord, I want to be a blessing. I want to be that avenue through which your blessing flows. I want to be that vessel, God, that you can pour yourself out of. I want to live a life, Lord, that, that gives blessing to those around me just by the presence of God that dwells within me, that Holy Spirit of God that you've filled me with.